Good morning. Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2? Um, I've titled the sermon this morning, Out of Focus. Um, but before we get into God's Word, let's just go to Him in prayer. God, I thank You for who You are. I thank You that You've revealed Yourself to us through Your Word and in creation through the person of Jesus Christ. God, I ask that this morning as we open Your Word, that You would give us a God-sized view of who You are, and that it would provoke our hearts to follow You, to be more committed to You, to love You more deeply. Praise in Your Son's name. Amen. It's biting me, Mike exclaimed, as he tried to shake the bear off his arm, but he, he was not a hunter, he was actually a biologist. And for 10 days, he had, he, there was this bear cub that had gotten its head stuck in a jar. And it was oppressing this poor bear cub because it was in Florida and the the heat was oppressive. And for 10 days, this bear had no access to food and very little access to water. So Mike, this biologist, he tranquilized the mama bear and then he helped remove the jar from the head of this cub. But in doing so, the, the cub turned on the very one who had saved it and he began biting Mike's arm. But despite the attack, Mike had this to say. He said, if not set free, it was only a matter of time until it died. Mike's assessment of the bear is God's assessment of Israel's southern kingdom, Judah. His people had rummaged around in the garbage of this world, and now they are stuck, and it's killing them. Time and time again, God had sent leaders and prophets and judges to bring his people back to himself. But every time they would turn from him and turn back to the very thing that was killing them. They they were being robbed of what would be a satisfied life in God. But God was faithful to them. and, And so he here sends Isaiah to help the people of Judah with their spiritual well-being to help them remove the jar from their head. But as we look at the people of Judah, let us not be so naive to think that this isn't also our condition as well. As we consider Judah's condition, search your own heart and see if you notice any resemblance. Because I think truthfully, we are all jarheads. We all get ourselves stuck. And when we do, we're starved of spiritual food. We thirst, but we cannot get to the springs of living water. We cannot breathe the joy of that God has for us. So this morning I want to show you the fallen condition of man through the worldly pursuit of Judah and then in chapter 2 and then we will discover the gospel solution by exploring the worthy pursuit of Isaiah in chapter 6. Consider now Isaiah's observation of God's people in Isaiah chapter 2. This is what Isaiah son of Amoz saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountains of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. They will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into the plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, 
Let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then Isaiah speaks to the Lord. He says, you, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low, and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. People of Israel, go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled, and the human pride brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will be totally will totally disappear. People will flee to the caves and the rocks and to the holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. And that day, people will throw away to the moles and bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made to worship. They will flee to the caverns and the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? This passage begs the question, why has God abandoned his people? This is strong language. God, God has abandoned them. And, and in fact, Isaiah goes on to say, do not forgive them. Why is Isaiah saying this? If it actually aligns with um, the past of God's promise to Israel, right? In ancient culture, they, they used what was called a covenant. Uh, it, was, it was a treaty or a promise between two parties. And there's two types of different covenants, but it set the framework or the, the basis of that relationship. And so there's um, unilateral covenants or promises. They're also called conditional covenants or um, I'm sorry, unconditional covenants. What it means is that there's only one acting party in this covenant. Think of a parent who makes a promise to a child regardless of that child's uh, behavior, performance, uh, ability in academics or sports, right? So, so Anna and I, we told Eden, we said, Eden, we got tickets to Hershey Park and we're going to go, we're going to have a fun day, you're going to get to ride rides, you're going to eat the park food, you're going to get to go to the zoo. It was a unilateral promise, there was nothing that Eden needed to do for this to be accomplished. In fact, it was in spite of her behavior that we took her to Hershey Park. You see, that, that week, um, she acted up. She threw fits. She uh, argued with mommy and daddy. When we told her it was time to leave the playground, she ran the opposite way. She, she didn't merit or deserve to go to Hershey Park. But yet the weekend rolled around, and despite her disobedience when we said, eat and eat your breakfast, and she was running away from the table, we still packed up our lunches. 
the sunscreen and our swimsuits. We got in the car and we drove to Hershey Park and we had a great day. Not because she deserved it, but because Anna and I had promised it unilaterally, unconditionally. Think of the Noahic Covenant. This is where God swore to mankind that despite their sinfulness and their wickedness, he would never again destroy the earth with a flood, right? God, God made this promise and, and covenanted with them to show restraint regardless of their unrestraint when it comes to their behavior. The other kind of a covenant, though, is bilateral or conditional. This is where both parties come to a mutual agreement that they will each do something to contribute to the agreement. They're going to work together. One side says, I'll do this, and the other side says, then I'll do that. It's bilateral. It's going both ways. This would be like Anna earlier in the week promising Eden that she could have a cookie after nap time if she didn't steal any of the ingredients off of the countertop as she helped her mom. This has become a problem with Eden. She found and discovered how good sugar tastes. So they're sitting there and they're making these cookies and Eden decided that her stomach was saying to her, roar, roar, and she reached with her hand into the canister of brown sugar and shoveled it into her mouth. And so Anna is just and good and honest by then withholding the cookie from her when she got up from nap. Eden, you don't get a cookie now because you broke our agreement. You said that you wouldn't touch the ingredients, but you did. You broke this covenant, this promise. On a much greater scale, this is the Mosaic covenant established between God and his people at Mount Sinai after he led them in Exodus out of Egyptian slavery. Here, he delivered the law which was meant to govern and shape his people to distinguish them from surrounding nations. If they fulfilled their side of this covenant, their side of the agreement, then God's face would shine upon them. They would be blessed they would live in peace. But on the contrary, if they violated this covenant, if they failed to fulfill their responsibilities, then God would curse them and turn from them. Israel was meant to bring hope to the people around them. In fact, they promised to do so. Notice what they said in Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 and 4. It says, When Moses went up and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything that the Lord had said. They promised, they, they covenanted with God and said, God, we will do this. And this is the backdrop of Isaiah chapter 2. The people of Israel covenanted with God to follow his law and to show his love to the surrounding nations. Verses 1 through 5 are visions, is a vision of Isaiah of the future to when this is the case, when God's people are an example to the nations that are searching for meaning and purpose in life. He sees Judah someday exalting God above all else, but not now. That's not currently the case for the house of Jacob. That day will come, but it's not now. In fact, the people were indistinguishable from the pagan nations around them. Verses 6 through 22 stand in sharp contrast to verse 5, where it says, Come to sense of Jacob, 
let us walk in the light or the path of the Lord. But that's not what Isaiah sees in chapter, or chapter 2, verses 6 through 22. Instead of loving God and his law, the people oriented their hearts towards worldly pursuits. Instead of walking in the ways of the Lord, instead of worshiping the Lord, they are instead invoking themselves in human worship. So Judah's worldly pursuit starts with human worship. And it begins, we see in verse 6, with this knowledge, right? It says, you have abandoned your people, the ascents of Jacob. Why? Because they are full of superstitions from the east. There's this human knowledge that they're pursuing. They're adopting a secular way of thinking. Their philosophies, their worldviews. They're emulating pagan countries like the Philistines with their sorcery and superstitions. Isaiah's point is that they've traded in their belief for Yahweh, God, and God alone. They've traded that in to pursue other religions, this, this religion of superstition. The people of Mesopotamia or uh, the people of the East worshipped creation, right? Like they, they made their life decisions based off of the sciences of astrology and astronomy. And that's, how, that's what dictated their life. They made decisions based off of these things. And the house of Judah followed their ways, trading in the creator for his creation. There's this shift that we see in God's people. But if we're honest, we do the same thing, don't we? We allow ourselves to be captivated by human knowledge, thinking we know everything. We choose a life that's autonomous from God. We buy into cultural mantras that promote self, right? You do you. Be what you want to be. Don't let anyone stop you from your dreams. With these beliefs, we claim to be Lord of our own life and we declare independence from God, our creator and maker. But Paul has a very different message about this in Romans chapter 8. He said, or sorry, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all, ungod- all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul declares this, this thinking is not only foolishness, but it warrants God's wrath. But that's where the people of Israel, specifically the nation of Judah, has gone. But it doesn't stop just with humanistic knowledge, but also worldly values, with, the, with wealth. It says in verse 7, it talks about silver and gold and treasures. The hearts of the people were not content with God. They longed for more. I'm reminded of an AT&T commercial uh, several years back um, where a company rep is sitting with these children and he's talking about, as any good cell phone company would, that more is better, right? Like we have a broader network. We offer more. We have more available. And then he turns to the children and he says, so tell me, kids, what's better? More or less? The obvious answer, more, right? And then he asks the children, he says, why? And this girl says, we want more. We want more. If you really like something, 
You want more. That's the human heart. We want more, and, and when we get more, we're not satisfied or content with it. We want more on top of the more we already had. We always want more, and we do what it takes to get it. For the people of Judah, it meant oppression of the already oppressed. It meant ignoring the needs of society's most vulnerable, the widows and the orphans. God was clear that love for him was shown by love for others. It's the great commandment. It's the sum of the law. His people were commanded to give to the poor and needy. They were instructed to provide shelter for the traveler. It was their duty to care for the widows and the orphans. But instead of worshiping God, the house of Judah worshiped themselves. They oppressed the weak in order to add to their own treasures, their own wealth. They turned their focus on wealth, even though it meant turning away from the God who had made them. But worldly values extend just beyond, also beyond monetary gain. It extends into power. It says, as we continue down in verse 7, it says, there's no end to their treasures, but then their land is full of horses, and there's no shortage of chariots. Isaiah continues by saying that the land is filled with these weapons of war. They were obsessed with power. Chariots and horses, these were the, the supreme weapons of war in this day and age, in this culture, in ancient civilization. And it would be like this. It'd, it'd be like, think of, of Britain during World War I being known for their naval fleet. The, the, that was this supreme power of their navy. Or the Third Reich and their... Um, huge army of tanks that would inflict pain on other countries. There's this power multiplying for themselves this dominance over others. But God's law prohibited this. He prohibited the king from adding to his, his army. He says this in, in Deuteronomy 17 verse 16. It says, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. You see, multiplying horses and lording power over others, that's how the pagans ruled. That's not how God's people ruled. In fact, God's people were to place their trust in him to defend them, to protect them, to lead them. Now, you probably don't have a garage filled with tanks or a dock with great Navy ships. But we also seek power, right? We, we lord our knowledge or our possessions over other people to convince them that we are better than they are. We use our words to hurt people and cut them down or to silence them. We devalue others created in the image of God. We treat harshly other people because it's an opportunity for ourselves to feel bigger and better about our own image. All of this reflects misguided worship and what the Bible calls idolatry. You see, the people also, they pursued this false religion. This worldly pursuit of religion that was not a religion focused on Yahweh. It was a religion of idols. And we see this in verse 8. 
It says that the, the people of Israel, Isaiah says, they've ascribed divinity to the ordinary. They are perceiving the natural to be supernatural. They're, they're following after uh, the, the pagan countries by making idols for themselves of their own hands. Again and again throughout this book, Isaiah criticizes the practice of idolatry. How can something made by you possibly sustain you? It's irrational. And it begs the question, how did Israel get here? They, they had seen the power of God delivering them from slavery out of Egypt. They had seen the glory of God shining on Moses' face as he came down from the mountain. They had seen the care of God providing them with food and water in the wilderness. They had seen the promises of God as he brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey. What happened? How, how could they see all of these things and still end up where they were today? Because they lost focus. Their perspective shifted away from God and onto themselves. They showed this human arrogance. And that was the second worldly pursuit, is this human arrogance. Isaiah sees the centrality of the problem is in their haughty spirit. We see that in verse 9, all the way clear through the end of the chapter. It says, so the people will be brought low and everyone humbled. How did they get here? Pride. They were arrogant, prideful, full of themselves. Time and time again, God had reminded them of the good things that he had done. And yet time and time again, they shifted their focus from God onto themselves. God time and time again reminded them that they were nobody until being called by him. They were slaves until God freed them from Egypt. They were sojourners until God led them to the promised land. They weren't warriors, yet they miraculously defeated these nations with great armies. God was continually faithful to a continually faithless people. But over and over, the nation of Israel continued to forget all of the blessings that God had poured out onto his people. They were arrogant, believing they made a name for themselves. They were prideful, convincing themselves that it was their strength that defeated their enemies. They were haughty, relying on their own abilities to produce good things. Ten times in this chapter, Isaiah asserts God's opposition to pride. Why? Because God is Lord alone. That's a theme that we keep seeing, that the Lord, the Almighty, the Lord alone This this is repeated several times through verses 9 through 22 when talking about the problem of the arrogance of the people of Israel. God stands in opposition to pride. He's the Almighty. He's the provider of all good gifts. And the people of Judah, they were spiritual jarheads. They've gotten themselves stuck. They need saving. So what's the solution? Because looking at this, we, do, we don't see a future that looks like chapter 2, 1 through 5. In fact, Judah's future looks ominous. There seems to be no hope for the people that are supposed to bring hope to the world. In fact, their king has just died of leprosy. 
But there's now a focus that turns to the undying king who redefines the future of his people. If you flip over just a couple pages to Isaiah chapter 6, let's read the first seven verses. It says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple above him, were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. There's a shift between Judah's worldly pursuit and in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's worthy pursuit. There's a shift of focus. Contrast Isaiah's experience with the example of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. How can God's people return? How can his people become the hope to the nations? How can Isaiah's vision of Judah being the place where people come to see God exalted, how can this become a reality? It begins with a focus shift. It begins with a heart oriented to the supremacy of God and not the supremacy of me. So first, in verses 1 through 5, we see a divine humility. A divine humility. But this perspective, it, it couldn't come from Isaiah himself. There was nothing in him good enough to give himself this appropriate perspective. Instead, he had to see who God was. And he has this vision of God. And what's amazing is Isaiah shares this vision, but he doesn't waste a single word as he explains it. Right? He, his vision emphasizes God's transcendence. It says that he's high and exalted. It emphasizes God's majesty. He's seated on the throne. And then he talks about the fact that day and night, God is worshipped by these seraphim. Seraphim, the, the word it means flame. It suggests that these angels possess their own magnificence and splendor. But yet, what's the posture of these flaming angelic beings before God Almighty? It's humility, right? Like, they're, they're in the presence of God. It says they have six wings, two of which have to shield their face from the glory of God. This is amazing. Are you captivated yet? Is your heart in all of the Creator. These angels, they sing back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. The word holy carries the idea of otherness or being distinctly different. There's one being that completely transcends this world and it's God. Yahweh. He is set apart in character and in his complete essence. You know, I believe that Isaiah knew this 
when he had the vision, but there was something profoundly different when he experienced this holiness than when he just knew it in his head. Because it gave him a new perspective, a humble perspective. And what's Isaiah's response in this passage? He literally crumbles to the ground and explains, exclaims that it's all over. He's doomed. Why? Because he calls himself unclean. Unclean is the, the word that lepers would walk around with, right? Like they're in a, a crowd of people and they'd walk around and yell, unclean, unclean. It was saying, stay back from me so I don't contaminate you. And Isaiah sees the holiness and the glory of God and he exclaims, unclean, stay back from me, God, and I deserve to die. That's his conclusion here. It's not a false humility, it's a divine humility that provoked repentance in his heart. Isaiah was brought low, believing that there was no hope for him in the presence of a holy God because of his uncleanness. Isaiah sees everything much more clearly, but with one exception. He still views his situation as hopeless in these first five, five verses. He underestimates the grace of God, but that's, tr that's changed and transformed here in verses 6 and 7 as he's introduced to this divine worship. God had not given Isaiah this vision to annihilate him. He does not do this to bring down fire and destroy him. No, God's purpose is to show Isaiah the truth and to redirect his worship from a human worship to a divine worship. Yahweh wanted him to start worshiping himself. The only one who was truly worthy of worship. But Isaiah was still unclean and, and so he can't enter God's presence and live. So God graciously and immediately applies the remedy to Isaiah. With great symbolism, the angel takes a coal from the altar of sacrifices and he touches it to Isaiah's mouth, his unclean lips. The remedy is immediate and sufficient. Isaiah's guilt is washed away and his sins were atoned for. Church, we too are unclean. Like Isaiah, our remedy was offered on the altar of sacrifice. His name is Jesus Christ. And he hung on the cross to remove the penalty of our sins, past, present, and future. It's only when we humble ourselves and admit this with a repentant heart that we, and we give up our independence that we can experience this saving grace. And when we do, it changes our lives and it changes our worship. Isaiah's only hope, Judah's only hope, and our only hope is the overruling grace of God. You know, several times throughout the Bible, God speaks about worship. All that we are and all that we do revolves around this concept of worship. And the truth is, you don't have to be religious to admit this, as David Foster Wallace demonstrates. In 2005, speaking at Kenyon College's commencement ceremony, this postmodern novelist argued eloquently and persuasively for this very point. He said this, he said, everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He then continued and said, whatever we use to do that, money, beauty, 
power, intellect, or something else will drive your life because it's a form of worship. But then as he continued on, he concluded that misguided worship will eat you alive. His conclusion was accurate, but his application was misguided. You see, this secular worldview that he had claims that you get to pick what right worship is for you. But God, who made you and created you, says otherwise. He has wired you to worship only one thing, and that is himself. Worship directed anywhere else will eat you alive. Orienting the focus of your heart anywhere else is like a bear with a jar stuck on his head. Church, the focus of our hearts determines the object of our worship. Only when we come to the end of ourselves are we ready to see God. But like Israel, even when we have seen God and his goodness, we struggle to keep our focus there. I'm reminded of the, the hymn, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. How often do our hearts wander? Even using religion as a means to serve myself. Our hearts wandering and turning God into a good buddy just to help us feel better about ourselves. We're, we're viewing God as the genie in the bottle to give me the things that I think will make my life better. Or we're using our faith, our religion, as a crutch for our good works and, and cheapening the grace of God to make it seem that he all but owes us because of how good I am, how good of a Christian I am. But when we see God as Isaiah saw him, we realize that he owes us nothing. Looking at God's holiness, we realize we don't just mess up, that we sin. We're, we're just like Israel. We're in love with the gods of this world. We are all jarheads in love with ourselves and our simple-minded desires. Maybe the idol of your heart is wisdom and learning. Or perhaps you spend so much of your time working because you love money and stuff. Maybe you are harsh with others because your idol is power. Maybe your idol is your own self-image that you work so hard on and the relationships that you, you endlessly pursue. Or perhaps it's a little bit of all of these. We all rummage around in the garbage of this world. We turn God into just another God on the shelves of our hearts. We pull him down on Sunday for worship, but come Monday, it's that promotion. Friday, it's our friends. Saturday, it's our sports. Christian, by God's grace, a crown of thorns was placed on Jesus' head to remove the jar from ours. With God, it's all or nothing. He will not share his glory with another. So will you give your heart holy to God. Because the focus of our heart determines the object of our worship. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for this reminder 
God, that we are so easily distracted. We are so easily pulled away. We are so easily tempted by the garbage of this world. We chase things that can never satisfy. And in doing so, we give up the only one who can satisfy. God, please tune our hearts to sing your praise. We love you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.